Children age three to six, you are dismissed for Children's Church. They should be waiting for you at the back. Well, today we are drawing close to the end of our series in Romans, part 41, which I've entitled The Teamwork of Missions. Would you bow with me once more as we enter God's Word? Lord God, we thank you that we have your Word before us this morning. We thank you that each one of us personally has a copy, or perhaps even many copies available to us, that we can study and learn and soak in your truth It is the power of God for our salvation, and we thank you that it is here to speak to us again today. Thank you that it is a double-edged sword, and that, Lord, through it, we can be transformed from the hearing of your word and by the, the washing the water of your spirit in that word, Lord. And so we pray that you would apply it to our hearts and lives, that we would be challenged and, and convicted by it, Lord, as you see fit. May it do the work that you've intended for each one of us today. So give me boldness as I speak. And I pray, Lord, that these words would be yours in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll begin this morning with a well-known true story about a man named Jimmy Durant. Jimmy Durant was a famous entertainer of a generation ago. And he was once asked to be a part of a show to show appreciation for World War II veterans. But he told the organizer that his schedule at the time was very busy and he could only afford to give them just a few minutes. But if they wouldn't mind him doing just one short monologue, he would do that and then immediately leave for his next appointment. Of course, the show's director agreed happily. Whatever they could get from the famous entertainer was was more than enough. And so they agreed. And so the evening of the event came. The veterans were all gathered Jimmy's turn came to go up on stage, and he did so. He went and he shared his one short monologue that he had planned on sharing, and the the crowd was very appreciative. There was a long round of applause, and as the applause died away, the organizer expected Jimmy to immediately take a bow and exit the stage. However, something interesting happened at this point. For after finishing and the, the applause began to die down, he stayed and launched into another series of humorous stories and anecdotes which soon had the veterans roaring with laughter. Well, the, uh, the applause continued and it grew louder and louder and still Jimmy continued on. Pretty soon he'd been up on stage for 15, 20, and finally 30 minutes. He took his last bow and left the stage to thunderous applause. The veterans had greatly appreciated his performance. Well, after his half-hour performance on stage, the director backstage stopped him and asked, I thought you had to go after just a few minutes. What happened? Why did you stay on for so long? Well, Jimmy answered, You see, I did have to go, and I'm now going to be late for my next appointment, but I can show you the reason that I stayed on and continued. He then pointed back towards the audience and said, Go and see for yourself. If you look down into the front row, the reason that I stayed. And so the director poked his head back through the curtain and he looked back towards the audience and into the front row. And there he saw two army veterans, each of whom had lost an arm in the war. 
One had lost his right arm, and the other one had lost his left arm. But then, sitting shoulder to shoulder, right next to each other, using each one his good arm, they were able to clap their hands together. And they were doing it with such uh, precision and with such enthusiasm, they seemed to be doing it just as well as anyone who had two good arms. And this here is a wonderful picture of the power of teamwork. Though separately these men were unable to clap their hands, they each only had one, when they said, we have a common goal here, we want to be able to clap for this great performance we're enjoying, let's sit next to each other and we will clap our hands together. And they did it just as well as anyone with two. It's a picture of each one of us as we consider our part in this teamwork of missions. Individually, we may not be able to do anything, but when we have other people next to us who have the same goal, we may be able to, in fact, work together in such a way to accomplish something together that we could never do individually. And so today, as we enter the back half of Romans 15, the final section, the conclusion, if you will, of Paul's lengthy letter to the church in Rome, he reveals to them one more time His great passion that, in fact, every beat of his heart was for one thing, and that was for missions. To bring the message of Jesus to the furthest reaches of the earth, this was Paul's singular passion. For you see, despite all that Paul had already endured and suffered for Jesus' sake, he still, after all those years, had a burning desire and ambition to bring the gospel of Christ to the most far-flung places of the world and especially to people who had not yet had the opportunity to hear the good news about Jesus. And so while Paul himself was the driving force, the tip of the spear, if you will, of these missionary journeys, he here in the concluding uh, portion of this letter wanted to make it very clear to the recipients of this letter, the Church of Rome, as well as to us today, that his was not a solo operation. He was not just a lone ranger out there doing this all on his own. No, rather, he wanted to emphasize to them that this was a team mission. It was a team which required the partnership and cooperation of all of the many churches working together in order to propel this mission forward and to sustain the mission. And so now Paul proceeds to, in a sense, invite the Roman believers to join him as his fellow teammates in this all-important mission. So if you have your Bibles, if you haven't turned there yet, please turn there with me again to Romans 15. And we begin there our passage in verse 14. And now after uh, 15 and a half chapters of, of deep, rich doctrine and teaching, and now the past couple of chapters of exhortation of how this is to be lived out in the Christian life, Paul begins his invitation Uh, to them to join him as partners, he begins this invitation with a compliment. A compliment. So this is what he says in verse 14. I myself am convinced, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, complete in knowledge and competent to instruct one another. Now, as Paul concedes in the very next verse, in fact, he concedes that he could be very blunt at times. But he also knew that a sincere compliment could do wonders in providing people with the encouragement they needed 
to do the right thing. And that is exactly what he does here. He gives them a sincere compliment. Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 3 says in this regard, But encourage one another daily, so long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. So here we are told, encourage one another, and to even do it daily, do it frequently, so that we may encourage one another that we would not be hardened by sin and its deceitfulness. So in this regard, when it comes to giving encouragement to other believers, how would you say that you are doing in this regard? When it comes to encouraging others, how would you say that you are doing? Does it come easily to you? Or is it one of those things that it nearly kills you to give someone a compliment? Where, where are you on the spectrum? Where it's, it's twisting your arm to say something nice about someone or it comes naturally? Well, chances are, if you're at all like me, you're, you're somewhere in the middle between those two extremes. And sometimes you do better at it, giving someone a sincere word of encouragement or a compliment, and other times where, where you don't because, for whatever reason, you, you think, oh, I don't want to give that person an ego or something like that, and, and so we hold off. But I would say that on this spectrum, the Bible's encouragement to us would be to do it more often than less often. Do it daily, the Word says. And so here is something where wherever we are on this spectrum, it says that we can do it more. Because giving others sincere compliments, giving them encouragement is something we can always improve in because it is a simple yet very effective way to build each other up in our faith and to keep us encouraged. So I just say, why not give it a try this week? Make it a point, write it down in your notes, that I'm going to find another Christian, a fellow believer, that I can encourage this week by giving them just a sincere compliment about something. And if you do this, I guarantee one thing, it will have more impact than you think. You might think it's just a passing thing that comes and goes, they say thank you, but chances are you're going to fuel that person much more than you think. It will have an impact. And so here Paul gives them this encouragement, and then he moves on into verse 16, where he shares with them his life's calling. And this is what Paul says of his life's calling. Verse 16. To be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, with the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God, so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable unto God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So this would be a summary statement of how Paul saw his life's calling, to be a minister of, the Genti- minister of Christ to the Gentiles, to proclaim the gospel, so that they too might come to God an acceptable offering. And so as we look at this, Paul here is viewing himself within the context of an analogy that he's giving. And the analogy is that he sees himself here as a priest. And as the priest, he has this duty of proclaiming the gospel. And so that the recipients, in this case, the Gentiles, that they could be an acceptable offering to God. So just as the high priest would would offer a sacrifice to God, Paul saw himself in this way as a priest offering the Gentiles as a living sacrifice to God. And so in this regard, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, then like Paul, you too can view yourself as a priest of God. You, in this sense, are a priest. In fact, Revelation chapter 1 and verse 6 says as much explicitly. 
There John writes, and he, that is Jesus, and he has made us, that is the church, to be a kingdom and priests, priests to serve his God and Father. So here we're explicitly told that we, by Jesus, have been made to be a kingdom and priests to serve God. So that means if you are a follower of Jesus, then just like Paul, you have been called to be a priest to proclaim the gospel of God, to serve him, to present others to God as an acceptable offering as they too are saved. And so here I ask the question, do you see yourself that way? If you are a follower of Christ, do you see yourself in this way? Now, as I thought about this, chances are you don't because the concept of priesthood is mostly foreign to us. We're, we're not Jews that, you know, are used to all of these customs. And so thinking our, of ourselves in this way is a foreign thought. The other reason it would come as a foreign thought to us and why we would perhaps not see ourselves as priests is that we feel unworthy. We feel unskilled. We perhaps feel underqualified for such an important role. But to this, I say, guess what? So did Paul. Paul also felt this way, for he often called himself, in other letters, the least of the apostles. He referred himself as, as being very, very humble and the least. It's also why, as we move into verse 17 and 18, he humbly says, Therefore, I glory in Christ Jesus in my service to God. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. You see, Paul recognized that anything lasting, anything of eternal value that his ministry accomplished was not because of his personal worthiness, his skill, or his qualifications. He didn't see himself as better than anyone else. In fact, he saw himself as less than anyone else. So here he says that it was solely because of Christ who had done it through him. This was the only reason he had accomplished anything, and that is all that he would speak of. He would not speak of anything in the sense of personal accomplishments, only in what Christ had accomplished through him. And then into verse 19, Paul proceeds to say that it was solely through the power of the Holy Spirit that he was able to do all of these things, that he was able to travel throughout the Roman Empire proclaiming the gospel of Christ and, yes, even performing signs and miracles so that the world would know that this was the message of God and God empowered it by his Holy Spirit. And so remember, for us today, as we consider ourselves in the same role as priests of God, remember that it is the same Holy Spirit the same Holy Spirit that empowered the Apostle Paul back then is the same Holy Spirit that empowers us right now today. In fact, it is the same Spirit who is here with us and indwelling our hearts through faith. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is not a different God in the Bible. He is the same God, and He is at work in our hearts through faith today. And so as we go out as the priests of God, as we proclaim the message the same way that God empowered Paul, he wants and desires to empower us in specific ways to bring the message of the gospel forward into our world, from the streets of Killarney and to the ends of the earth. And so here, this is Paul's life calling, and in the most important way, it is the calling of every believer. And now thirdly, 
Paul would emphasize that everyone needs a chance to hear the gospel. Everyone needs at least one chance to hear the gospel. In verses 20 and 21, Paul continues, it's our call to worship. He says, it has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known, so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Rather, as it is written, those who were not told about him will see, and those who have not heard will understand. Paul's desire was to bring Christ where he was not known, to bring the message, so that those who did not know, those who had not heard, would have that chance, and so fulfill prophecy as he references it there. And so we see, in order to give everyone a chance to hear the gospel, this ambition that Paul had, he was willing to travel great distances and to far-flung places, even as we saw in our video this morning. That was, in fact, the, the homeward journey after this letter had been written as he headed towards Rome. That was just one glimpse into the many, many adventures and journeys that Paul took. Now, I want you to take note in verse 19 of some of the, the physical locations that Paul references. Look at what he says in verse 19. So from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. So from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. Now, uh, I have a map slide that if you guys could pull that up for me. And I just want to give you just a little bit of a bird's eye view of the, the region that Paul is referring to here. Okay, so this, this map, you really have to spend some time to look at it. You see in the corner there, it says map of Paul's missionary journeys. There's a whole bunch of crisscrossing uh, arrows and lines on there. And that's because Paul made many missionary journeys. Uh, uh, three official ones that are recorded in the book of Acts. And then the fourth one is his final voyage to Rome, which we saw in the children's video. And that's the lowest arrow where you see coming from the island of Crete and then to Malta where they crashed in the video and then up Sicily and then all the way north up to the city of Rome. That was his final journey. But you see all the arrows before that, a lot of it coming from uh, Jerusalem, which of course is there in Judea, the bottom right hand of the map. There he went north. He spent a lot of time in the city of Antioch, which is just on the north edge of Syria there on that map. But then where is this region of Illyricum? Well, it's actually, if you look, there's just a big block there called Macedonia there in yellow. The northern half of that region of Macedonia, this map didn't quite break it down enough. But the northern half, uh, you could probably draw a line just right underneath where it says Macedonia. Northward from there, that was called the province of Illyricum. And so this is what we would call in modern-day times the Baltic region. It's, it's what used to be the nation of Yugoslavia, which has since broken up into a fragment of many smaller nations. But in those days, that region was more or less considered the wilderness. It was, it was way out of the way. And for Paul to have gone all the way up there and back around again, remember, he traveled in loops. And when he says, I have fully proclaimed the gospel... Paul was not just going through and doing like one meeting per city and then going on. He would stop and he would preach for weeks and months. And if there was, if there was uptake, if there was enough believers that were being saved, he would then establish a church there until there were elders that were trained enough to continue on the work so that he could continue on his journey 
And then he'd circle back around on his way back and see how they were doing and inevitably have to address all of the false doctrines and ideas and corrections that needed to take place on his way back through. And so when he says, I have fully proclaimed the gospel to this wide region, he was not exaggerating. He had done an incredible, uh, superhuman, because it wasn't human, it was by the Spirit, amount of work And so the round trip, the rough number of the round trip of this is a span of 1,400 miles. And he's traveling in a time where it's mostly done by foot or the odd time that he could get on a ship, he would do that. And so he traveled through this region. Now, in verses 23 to 29, Paul also says that I'm now planning to come and see you guys in Rome. I've done all of these things. I'm coming to see you in Rome, but it's only after I've first returned to Jerusalem. Uh, He was writing this letter from Corinth. And if you look, I think Corinth is there in uh, the region of of Achaia or or Greece as it's known. And he's writing it from there, but he's first going to sail all the way back to Jerusalem. Then he says, I'm going to see you guys, but only on my way through to Spain. Because he has another mission in in, in mind that he's going to go and do in Spain. And so here we see that Spain, you can't even see it on this map. And that's actually quite fitting because in Paul's day, most maps didn't even include Spain because it was just considered the boonies. It was considered the ends of the earth. In fact, sailors considered, if you, if you sailed past Spain through the Strait of Gibraltar, what we call it today, and you went out into the open ocean, they were quite certain that you would just sail off the edge of the earth somewhere over there. So that was just the furthest reaches of the earth of Paul's day, and yet Paul's like, I'm going there. Jesus has not yet been taken there. That's where I'm going. So Rome, I'm going to see you on the way through. You can support me, join me, and then send me out as I keep going to Spain. And so we see that none of these challenges deterred Paul whatsoever. And the core reason, of course, is that he had personally received the gift of salvation from Jesus Jesus had met him personally on the road, had had turned his life around entirely, and now this gift was simply too good to keep for himself. He had to share it. And Paul says elsewhere he was compelled by this message and the love of God. He was compelled. He had to share it. And so who better to share it with than those who had not yet had the opportunity to hear? And so what about us? What about us? How compelled are we to share this message, this good news with others? Do we have a a passion that burns within us to give others at least the chance, the opportunity to hear about Jesus, his love, and to respond? Do we have that desire within us? Or, Or are we sometimes content? Are we content in the knowledge that we have the gospel We have the good news. I have it. I know I'm saved. I know I'm going to heaven when I die. And so I'm just going to more or less keep it for myself. Well, there's a story that was shared in the Reader's Digest once of a lady who was taking a first aid course. And so in the process of this class, the students were asked to give examples of how they had already been able to use their first aid training. And this was quite a lengthy course and an in-depth training study. 
And so as the classes came around, this one lady who had taken the course, when the opportunity came to share of experiences where she'd used this knowledge in a practical way, she put up her hand, the instructor pointed to her, and she said, I'm so excited, I got to use my first aid training this week. You see, I heard a terrible crash in front of my house. A car had run into my yard, hit a tree, the car doors had flown open, and there were some injured people lying on my front lawn. Well, because I had taken this first aid course, I I immediately knew what I was to do. So I made a cold compress. I then applied it to the back of my neck, sat down, and put my head between my knees so I wouldn't pass out. Well, when she had finished, the instructor, then with an incredulous expression about this scenario, asked, but what about those injured people lying on your lawn? To which the lady had replied, what about them? What about them? This is about me. What about them? You see, all too often, all too often, we're guilty of being like that lady. Perhaps more than we sometimes care to admit, where we, we, we use the first aid of the gospel only on ourselves. And yes, we need it. Let's not discount that. We need it, first and foremost. But once we have it, others need it too. We have to recognize that. The first aid is not just for ourselves. The first aid of the gospel is for everyone. It's not for ourselves. It's not for us to be callous to the reality that there are people around us who urgently need it still. Paul, however, never once had this problem. I don't believe it. When we look at his life, Paul never lost the urgency of the gospel. He never lost the reality that there were people out there who had not yet had a chance to hear. Because Paul kept it in his mind, I'm certain, that every single day there were people out there dying and slipping into eternity without Christ. And as he said earlier in Romans, we looked at it. How can they believe unless they have someone to tell them? So how beautiful are the feet of them who bring good news? People are out there slipping into eternity without Christ every single day. The gospel is a matter of urgency. It is estimated that of The incredible number, it's actually going higher. I just looked it up this week. Of the 7.75 billion people on planet Earth today, 7.75 billion people, it's estimated by mission agencies that some 3.23 billion of them live in completely unreached people groups. (laughs) Meaning that 3.23 billion people on earth simply have no access to the gospel whatsoever. They are com- in completely unreached people groups. The gospel is not available to them. Now, according to the Joshua Project, there are approximately, big number, 17,446 unique people groups in the world. So this isn't just nations. This is talking about people groups with distinct culture and language. Over 17,000 of them. Another big number, with 7,400 of them considered completely unreached. 7,400 people groups unreached, which is 41% of the Earth's population. 41%. Now, I realize that these big numbers 
Uh, you know, when we throw them out there like that, they're just overwhelming and they make us feel somewhat helpless, paralyzed by the fact of how big this mission is and how small we are in comparison. And how like the opening illustration, we sometimes just feel like we only got one arm to give and what good is that one arm? We feel like we're helpless. So what can you do? What can I do? But more importantly, what can we do? What can you do as one individual? What can I do as one? What can we do as one small church to help bring the good news of Jesus Christ to this world and to the unreached in it? Well, there are four things that Paul will now draw out for us that we can do, you and I, together. We can do these things. Number one is paramount. We have to love people who are lost without Jesus. We have to love people who are lost without Jesus. You see, you will never go across the world, let alone across the street to a neighbor, unless you first have a love for people who are lost without Jesus and have a burden to at least see them given the opportunity to hear about the gospel and so be saved. Because ask yourself, what motivated Jesus himself to leave the glory of heaven, to, to set all of that beside, what motivated him to come on this great missionary journey to earth in order to seek us? What motivated him? Well, John 3 verse 16 tells us clearly, for God so loved the world. And the world isn't talking about just the, the terra firma beneath our feet. The world is talking about people. People. God so loved people that he gave his only begotten son. God loved lost and broken and hurting people. And so just as love compelled Jesus to leave heaven to come to earth, it is always going to be love that will likewise compel us to go and to bring the good news of Jesus to people who need him just as badly as we do. So the answer to the question, will I go? Will I go? The answer to that question can already be known by answering this question first. Do I love people? Do I love lost people the way God loves lost people? Because you see, there will always be, always, and I can tell you this from my own life, there will always be a seemingly good and valid reason that we can find to excuse ourselves from personally going into missions. I can always find a reason to let myself off the hook from getting directly involved in bringing the gospel to people. I can, and I have. And so if we are not compelled by a deep love, first for God, and then from the love he's given to us, share a deep love for the lost in our world around us, then we will always stop before we have even begun. Because we will find a way to excuse ourselves. However, and this is Paul's story, this is Paul's testimony, however, once our hearts have been captured and captivated by the love of God given to us so freely through Christ, and out of that love, we learn to love the lost the way God does, even by just a little bit. Then we are compelled. The love compels us to go out and to do whatever God has given us to do, whatever skills he has given us, whatever abilities, whatever gifts, to invest 
in bringing that good news of the gospel to those who need to hear it. And so, missions work always begins and ends with heart work. We can talk about mechanics all we want, but if our hearts are not in it, if there's not love in our hearts, we're just wasting our time. We're going through the motions. It begins and ends with heart work. So if you recognize in this moment within yourself that there is a lack of love for the lost, then it's simple. Bring it to the Lord. Bring it to the Lord and invite him to minister to your heart, to do some heart surgery, and to have his love infuse your heart with a love, an eternal love for the lost that compelled Jesus to come to seek and to save those which were lost. Ask him to fill you with a greater love, and he will. So it begins there with the heart. We need love for the lost. Secondly, it's simple. We won't spend a lot of time on it. If you are given opportunity, if you are called, then go. Go on mission. Now, going on mission can look like a whole lot of things, but Jesus just put it out there, the Great Commission, go into all the world and make disciples. Now, of course, not everyone is called to go to Africa or Asia or Central America or China. But, but listen, some are, not everyone, but some are called to go to those places. And some are called to go to places in Clarny and in Manitoba and at Turtle Mountain Bible Camp and at Roseau River Bible Camp and at Valley View Bible Camp. And, you know, there are so many places that we can go to. Some people are called to go to vacation Bible school, work at the Christian school. There are so many places within our own province, our own land, that we can be called to go to. So wherever God calls you to go, then go. And if that call is a family member, a neighbor across the street, it is the same. Go and share as God leads you. The third one is this, we give. We give to the work of mission. Now, not everyone, yes, can go to the mission field. Not everyone is called to do that. But listen, everyone can give to the mission field. The fact is that in the teamwork of missions, not everyone can be a Paul or is even called to do so. But by God's design, the entire church has a vital part to play in supporting those missionaries who are called to go. And one of those ways is by supporting them financially. If we look now at Romans 15 and verses 25 to 27, therein, just I'll give you the synopsis, Paul says that the main reason he was first heading back to Jerusalem was in order to bring a financial gift that he had collected from the churches in Macedonia and Achaia, those provinces that we saw on the map. He had, he had taken up an offering and that this offering was now going to be delivered to the church in Jerusalem to be used to bless the mission of the church there and specifically as they ministered to the poor. Elsewhere in another letter, Paul even once challenged the church in Corinth to give as generously to the work of the mission as some of the other churches had done. He, he was spurring them on. Come on, look at what these other churches are giving. What are you going to give to support the mission? Because the simple fact is, this is getting into the mechanics of missions, is that the work, the mechanics of advancing the message of the gospel, both here at home in Manitoba and around the world, it requires financial resources. And so I am just so thankful to God that this church family has been so faithful over the years 
to give generously towards God's work, towards missions. And, and we've been uh, just so blessed to be able to give and to do that faithfully. And so I continue to encourage us as a church family to continue to give, that God can bless and multiply that to furthering the mission. Now, one of those faithful missionaries who heeded the call to go, and then out of her going also encouraged other Christians to give towards the work, was a little lady by the name of Lottie Moon. Now, Lottie stood only 4 feet 11 inches tall, about the height of my mother-in-law, 4 foot 11. A little lady, but a lot like my mother-in-law, is a ball of energy, or was a ball of energy. And so for 39 years, she gave her life in ministry to the women in China. In 1888, she wrote a letter back to some friends in the U.S. and asked if they would be so kind as to take up a Christmas offering for the mission. They had fallen on hard times. There, there was no money for supplies or anything. And she said, to move the mission forward, we need about $2,000, which was a lot of money in those days. Well, the church took up the offering. And over $3,000 was collected and sent to her that first year, and it greatly blessed the ministry. Started a new tradition that the Southern Baptist Conference took up, that the home church who had done it first, the conference took up. And, and so the Southern Baptist Conference, through the years, every Christmas, receives a special offering designated for missions. And in recent years, one of the offerings that was sent to the mission field was $125 million just a couple of years ago. $125 million was collected and sent towards missions. And so you could rightly say that that little 4 foot 11 inch Lottie Moon's life continues long after her death to make an outsized giant impact for the advancement of the gospel. And so let us likewise give generously to the work of God and remember that the Lord loves a cheerful giver and he will bless and multiply those gifts, whether they are great or small. When we give cheerfully to the Lord's work, he loves that and he will bless and multiply it. So let's continue to do so. That's the third thing we can do is to give. And the fourth and final thing is this, we can pray for the work of missions. Pray. In Romans 15 and verse 30, Paul now makes this direct appeal to the Romans to join his team. And he says to them, I urge you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. Now again, not everyone can go, but everyone can pray. Not everyone can go, but everyone can pray. There are two specific things that we should focus our prayers on when we pray in this way. First, we pray for more workers to be sent into the mission field. Look at what Jesus said in Matthew 9, 37. He said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray and ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest field. So here we see that the first thing to do is to pray for more workers to be sent. Remember, it is God's work and it is God's calling. So pray that when God calls someone, that they will have ears to hear the call and then hearts to obey the call, feet to be obedient, to walk into the call. And as we pray for this, one thing we have to remember and to be humbly aware of is that sometimes when we pray for God to send more workers, that someone, that worker, might just be you. 
So let's pray for more to be sent. Secondly, we pray for the workers who have already been sent. Paul says, pray for me. He asks for direct prayer. So pray for those already sent. Pray for the pastors. And in this, I'll say, please pray for me. I need your prayers. Pray for the missionaries. Pray for them, both at home in Canada and abroad in many different nations. Because while we may, we may rarely know how our prayers impact anything or anyone, especially when we pray for people in far-flung places, remember this, God knows. And one day I believe that he will, he will show each one of us how he used our prayers to make an impact for his work in the world and even to the eternal salvation of souls of people we have never met, but we will meet them in glory. So be faithful and diligent to pray for those who have already been sent, for none of your prayers are wasted when it is God who is listening. I'll conclude with this story from just over a hundred years ago of a Scottish preacher by the name of Robert Moffat. He was serving as a missionary in South Africa. The work was hard. There were very few of them. So he returned to Scotland to try to recruit more missionaries to join in reaching the dark continent of Africa. And on a cold and rainy night, he went to this little church in Scotland. And in this little church that evening, to his dismay, the only people in attendance that night were women. Now, if that sounds offensive to you, remember, this is the 1800s, and in those days, women didn't go alone to the mission field. The call always included men. If, if women were going, they would be accompanied by a husband or, or in the group of men. And so the fact that this was only women there was disheartening to, to him because in his view, there were no prospective missionaries there. But he knew he'd been called to be there, and so nonetheless, he preached. He spoke about the need for the Lord of the harvest to send forth more laborers, and in his message, he made this statement. Every morning... When I get up and I look at the horizon, I see the smoke from a thousand villages rising where the name of Christ has not been heard. Now Robert Moffat, when he said those words, didn't know it. But there was, in fact, a man, a young man, a teenager in attendance at that service. You see, he was hidden up in the organ loft where his job that night was to pump the bellows for the pipe organ. And this teenager, standing up in the organ chamber, heard every word that was said. He was captivated by the phrase, the smoke from a thousand villages rising where the name of Christ has not been heard. He couldn't, he couldn't leave it. And so this young man decided that he would heed the call. He would become a missionary. He would go to the dark continent of Africa. But it would take some years before he accomplished this. He trained in medicine. He became a doctor. He was not content, however, to stay in South Africa when he knew that to the north there were so many nations and tribes who had never, ever heard the gospel in the inner part of the continent. And so this missionary, he also was a great explorer. And he was the very first white man to traverse the continent of Africa from east to west through the interior. He was the man credited with discovering the Victoria Falls. He traveled over 29,000 miles in his lifetime of missions. Along the way, he mapped 1 million square miles of previously uncharted territory. And so, when this man, who you will recognize his name, when Dr. David Livingston first began his ministry there in Africa, some of the native tribes opposed him. 
One particular warlike tribe said that they were going to kill him and everyone in his party. And so one afternoon as they were setting up camp, word went out that these warriors had been tracking him, following them all day, and they were now outside the camp. And they were going to attack at nightfall and kill every last one of them. Now I have the words that David Livingston wrote in his journal that night on January the 14th of 1856. He wrote, It is evening. I feel much turmoil and fear in the prospect of having all my plans knocked on the head by savages who are just now outside the camp. Now those who studied his handwriting in his journal said you could even see the fear in the way he wrote his letters. They were shaky, which wasn't his custom. But he wrote also, But Jesus said, All power is given unto me in heaven and on earth, and lo, I am with you always, even to the ends of the earth. And then Livingston wrote, This is how the word of a gentleman of most strict and sacred honor. So that's the end of my fear. I feel quiet and calm now. And as he wrote these words, his letters straightened out and were smooth once more. Incredibly, though they lurked all night, they did not attack. And later on, some years passed, this tribe was reached. They were evangelized and many of them came to faith in Christ And some more years passed, and David Livingston was able to ask the chief of that tribe personally, Do you remember that night you were tracking my party? You had encircled us in the jungle? Yes, the chief replied. David said, We had heard rumors you were going to attack and kill us all. And the chief said, That's right. We were ready to attack the camp that night and kill you and everyone else. And so Livingston asked again, Why? Why didn't you attack? And the chief said, when we got close to the camp, we looked up and we saw 47 warriors surrounding your camp with swords in their hands. 47 we counted. And Livingston was utterly baffled. They didn't have any guards, let alone warriors. And later on, when he was on furlough in Scotland, he shared this incredible story at one of the churches that was supporting him. And at the close of the service, a man came up to him with his prayer journal in his hand, and he said, Look, I wrote it down. It's here on the record. January 14th, 1856, the night you spoke of. That night, a group of men from this church got together to pray for you. There were 47 men in attendance at that prayer service that night. 47 men praying for you the night of your deliverance. And that chief saw 47 armed angels, warriors, protecting them, and so did not attack. We don't know what our prayers do, but God does. Remember that. Your prayers are not wasted when it is God who is listening. So as we conclude, are you a member of God's team to reach the world? If not, I invite you, I invite you to join And if you know, yes, I already am a member of that team, then let me just ask, is there some aspect that God wants you to dig in on more deeply? Because whatever part of the team that God has called you to, it is important. So love, go, give, and pray, and may God add to our number those who are being saved. Amen. Heavenly Father, the Lord of the harvest, we do call on you to send more laborers, more workers into your harvest field. And so, Lord, if it be me, then send me. 
And if it be someone listening to the sound of my voice this morning who you are right now tapping on the shoulder saying, I'm calling you to go. I pray, Lord, that you would right now give a humble and obedient spirit motivated by love to say, yes, Lord, here I am. Send me. I will go. And Lord, right now we pray for those who have already heeded the call to go. We lift them up to you, even as those 47 men lifted up David Livingston that night. We pray, Lord, intercede for them, though we know not their circumstances. Empower them. Guard them by your holy ones, by your angels. And make the message powerful, Lord, for the salvation of many. And that your word can go out into the furthest ends of the earth. Use us, we pray, to that end. In Jesus' name. Amen.